following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Well, good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Can't tell it's Palm Sunday, can you? Because we don't have any leaves to poke anybody in the face with. You can all uh, email Pam and say, come back from Florida. We need your palm leaves. Well, um, today is the beginning of what is uh, traditionally referred to as Holy Week, um, where the accounts of the last week of Jesus' ministry are recorded day by day until his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Um, And usually, like I said, uh, Palm Sunday is marked with all kinds of palm fronds being waved around by the kids. And we uh, remember Jesus' triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem on the first day of that uh, Holy Week. But uh, rather than focus on the events of that day and trying to make a sermon out of the specific things that happened that day, um, We're going to continue to work on Isaiah 52 and 53 so that we can further appreciate, I think, what the Father was was up to uh, through Jesus rather than get wrapped up in in all the palms and uh, uh, coats and and donkeys and all that sort of thing. Um, So let's turn to Isaiah 52, uh, start at verse 13, and that's page 613 in the Pew Bibles, if that's helpful to you. Isaiah 52:13, page 613 of your Bibles. Let's pray and then we'll read that together. Father, we are so grateful for your love for us. We're so thankful for your word in which you have clearly communicated your, uh, your character, your holiness, um, and your love for us. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom as we look into your word this morning, that our hearts would be soft to receive the message that you have for us. Our ears would be open to hear it, and our eyes would be open to see you at your work. God, we are just so grateful for all that you have done and for who you are and how you prove your love in the Lord Jesus Christ. For us in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's look at Isaiah 52, start at verse 13. This is first word is always the hardest one. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marked beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with his strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. May God bless his word this morning. As we discovered last week, as we start work on this, um, this wonderful passage is neatly divided into five stanzas, all of which I hope to get through last week, and you see how far we've made it through one. Um, but uh, I promise we'll get through most of the rest of them this morning. Um, it's neatly divided into five stanzas like an old hymn. Um, we're going to leave that last stanza for next week for Easter Sunday. So we're going to look at the three stanzas in the middle, uh, one at a time. Uh, starting with uh, chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Um, now, Jeremiah is often uh, had the distinction of being the weeping prophet. You've heard that expression before. Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. But this second stanza, Isaiah does some lamenting of his own. And the questions that he poses there in the first verse, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, Isaiah is not curious. Hey, has anybody heard what we've been saying? Anybody seen the arm of the Lord 
Baird? No? Oh, okay, well, we'll move on then. Right? That's not what he's doing. Isaiah is complaining. He's not taking a poll. He's saying, who has heard what I've been saying? He's already answered his question in asking it. He doesn't think anybody listening to him. He sounded like, the, uh, like Elijah the prophet. He said, there's nobody left. I'm the only one, God, and I want to die. And God says, suck it up, buttercup. You're not the only one. I've left this. I've got a remnant. Don't, don't, don't do that. So I think, uh, I mean, Isaiah is just to show he's a human being here. But still, he's groaning that it seems that no one has heard his message and the Lord has not revealed his strength and, and the strength of his plan to anyone. Just him. He's feel all alone. Isaiah is groaning and complaining that the gospel has been rejected among his people. Well, the truth is we ought to groan along with him. John Calvin said, let us groan and complain along with the prophet. It seems that, it, uh, that this is in the job description of the prophets, that they are faithfully to preach God's word and people not going to listen. Uh, the message will be rejected and they'll be killed for preaching it. It's a pattern that Jesus followed too. In verse 2, he says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. In verses 2 and 3, Isaiah is uh, predicting the humility and obscurity of Jesus' upbringing in Nazareth. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Nazareth is not exactly the center of the known universe. Um, it's an out-of-the-way place. It's not on the way to anything else. Um, not even as on the way to anything as Osipi is. It's, it's out of the way. And uh, when, um, when the apostle Nathaniel was told about Jesus of Nazareth, come here, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, but the best response was, well, come and see. Um, that's John 1, 46, if you want to look that up. It's kind of funny. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nothing good happens in there, that place. Yet in that out-of-the-way place, the Lord Jesus grew up like a tender root from dry ground in the humility of a carpenter's home. Verse, six, uh, verse 2, sorry, goes on to say, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Hmm. Some of this stuff just makes me feel better as a preacher. But it wasn't Jesus' charisma or charm or slick roadshow or, or anything like that that brought people to him. That, uh, that's, those sorts of things might work in our culture. If you get a slick presentation and you, and you look the part, um, you know, that's the people going to like that and draw a crowd that way. Um, but Jesus didn't look the part of a world-shaping leader. 
No winning smile, no slick presentation. In fact, verse 3 puts it, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. There's another way to translate that last line. It's the one whom hides his face from others, that he was despised. Some scholars say these statements are about his crucifixion, but I don't think that's the truth. I think it has to do with Jesus as a person, as a man. We can't forget that though Jesus is God, fully God, he is also fully man. He knows what it's like to live in this world. He knows what it's like to be rejected by people. People were not drawn to him because of his good looks or any of the other shallow trappings of the kind of people who make a comfortable living selling their influence to other people or selling their latest book. Jesus knew what it meant to suffer long before the cross. He knew rejection long before his disciples scattered and fled after he was arrested in the garden. He knew sorrow long before the agony of God the Father turning his face away from him and covering the land with darkness for three hours. And I think in that way, we can see that Jesus can identify with the struggles that we face. Jesus' death on the cross dealt once and for all with sin and its consequences. But his life on earth shows us that he understands all our troubles in life. Every rejection, every humiliation, every insecurity... He knows exactly what it's like to be a human being in this crazy world. I take comfort in that. Knowing that there's no trial that I face that Jesus didn't face. He knows. He knows what it's like to be me. He knows what it's like to be you. He knows what we go through because he's a fully man fully human being and the next stanza begins in verse 4 we get to the brass tacks of why Jesus had to die on the cross he says surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we have, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus has borne our griefs. Jesus has carried our sorrows. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord, Yahweh, laid on the Lord Jesus the iniquities of us all. Our sin, 
our disobedience, our rebellion against God was laid on the Lord Jesus. The griefs that we should have borne, he bore. The sorrow that we should have carried, he carried. The piercing and crushing that we should have been pierced with and crushed with, he was pierced and crushed with. God the Father laid all that on his Son. He took our sorrow our griefs, our transgressions, our iniquities, our sin, and in return, gave us peace with God. Our wounds were healed because of His wounds. And we, like scattered sheep, have been gathered together into His fold. Praise the Lord. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed... And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. I have to admit, sometimes when I work on a passage, um, uh, I start to hurry up at the end. And this last stanza, I, I, I admit, was very tempting just to roll right through. In Jesus' name, amen. And then we'd be done. And we can sing and, and then drink more coffee. But this last stanza is not just a tack on. It's the most important part. When Jesus was on trial, he never defended himself against the accusation of the Jews. In Matthew 26, 62, and 63, he was silent before Caiaphas, the high priest. In Matthew 27, 12, he was silent before the chief priests and the elders of the nation of Israel. In Matthew 27, 14, he was silent before Pilate. Also, John 19, 9. In Luke 23, 9, he was silent before Herod Antipas. And first Peter two twenty one through twenty three, Peter testified that he didn't even speak when he was being beat on by the soldiers. I've often wondered why Jesus was silent beyond fulfilling this prophecy here. But as far as his accusers were concerned, there's nothing he could have said that would have changed anything. What's he going to say? Oh, you're right. You're right. You got me. I'm a, I'm a charlatan. I'm a liar. You, you caught me. Would Jesus be able to say that? No, because as we've seen here, he's fully man, but he's fully God. And he can't contradict his character. It would be impossible for him to lie. 
and get out of the torment he was receiving. But I think the truth is that he wasn't on trial for himself. He was on trial for us. And we are guilty. All of us. There is no defense for our sin. I want you to think about that for a minute. There's no defense for our sin. We can't say, whoops, Lord, it was an accident. No. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been made a new creature. And with your new creation comes a choice. Can it choose to sin or not? Sin is a choice for us. We have no defense. God who judges rightly and justly knows our hearts. He knows our sin. And he knows that there is no defense that can be made on our behalf. And that's why Jesus was silent. Because he wasn't on trial for himself. He was on trial for us. And we are guilty. As verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. The oppression and judgment that his generation and every generation before or since deserved was laid on him. And no one in his generation, even the disciples who were closest to him, nobody understood that at that time he was being stricken for the transgression of mankind and not his own. The disciples just figured they finally got sick of him, so they did what was necessary to be rid of him. They weren't thinking, oh, he's going through all this for us. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy man, a rich man. Nobody had ever been laid in that tomb before. But there's also a lot of other tombs around there of wicked people. But he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the most important part. Jesus was absolutely 100% innocent. He did not deserve to die. did not deserve to be tortured and beaten, insulted and spit on and crucified he's completely righteous and yet he paid the price for our sin and in return we get his righteousness his innocence before God as John Piper said this is the gospel the good news that our sins are laid on Christ and his righteousness is laid on us And that this great exchange happens for us, not by works, but by faith alone. And as it is written in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the best news ever told. I think it's pretty good news to embrace this season. To remember 
all these things that we can so easily just make into a seasonal expression of, of whatever, it was real. Not just so we can have a holiday and have ham for lunch and Easter, but that we might become the righteousness of God. That's a beautiful thing. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what a raw deal you got that you gave up your only son and in return it got us. But we are so thankful. We're so grateful that before we were even born, you knew. You knew what we were going to do. You knew the choice that we were going to make. You knew the times that we would turn our back on you, that we'd reject you, that we would pretend you didn't exist. And you died in our place. Taking that rejection upon yourself, taking responsibility for our actions, is the greatest news anyone's ever been told that our sin is paid for that we've been the recipients of the greatest exchange ever known, that in exchange for our sin, we get the righteousness of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ. We are so thankful. May that message ring out from our lives. May this Easter season be a time that your kingdom is expanded because people hear for first time or understand for first time that Jesus died for them. They don't have to do anything about it, but trust you. You've done all the work, and we're so grateful for it. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your plan. And we thank you that you've made us part of it. We pray all this in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.